0: continue our study of Advent in preparation for uh, for Christmas. Uh, this morning, I thought I might share with you about a uh, special event in my life that took place, oh, probably close to close to 45 years ago. My dad and my family took us, my, my mom and dad and all the whole family went to uh, Went on vacation, and one of the places we got to go to was Yellowstone. I've been to Yellowstone National Park for one time, but what an experience it was. As we think about, I can still remember it vividly, probably more so than anywhere that I've, that I've ever been and anything that I've ever seen, are the things that I saw uh, at Yellowstone National Park. Now, if you haven't been, or even if you have, probably seen the sites of Yellowstone, either on television or in print in some way. It was the first national park that was established in the world. Its wonders captivated lawmakers in Washington, and in 1872, President Ulysses S. Grant signed the act that set aside Yellowstone as a protected treasure. Now, if you're, if you're familiar with the area you, you can see the beauty of nature the beauty of the uh, of the mountains and the trees and the and the water there's nothing there that isn't spectacular but you may be more familiar with the uh the wildlife that's there there's all sorts of wildlife that runs through uh Yellowstone there are the bears and there's the elk um, there are uh, a number of other wild animals, the beavers and, and uh, the buffalo, the wild uh, bison uh, that roam throughout the park. And there are, on a rebound now, the wolves are making their way back and it's affecting and improving the entire ecosystem as a part of Yellowstone. You may be familiar with those things. I didn't even show a picture of moose or, or other animals that, that are in the park, but the wildlife is, is one thing that we can remember that I remember vividly about my trip to Yellowstone. But I uh, I think that more than anything else, what we what we probably at least what I uh, equate with or think of when I think of Yellowstone National Park is the geysers. The geysers are throughout the park. Some of them massive. Some of them quite small. But they are—they uh, are very impressive, and they are—they uh, are an important part of the ecosystem that's there in Yellowstone. Uh, now, the crazy thing is that there are several different kinds of geysers. The one that you see on the screen is just one of the types of geysers. Uh, there is so much geothermal. Activity that's beneath the surface there. It's amazing. Basically, Yellowstone sits on top of a huge super volcano and, and brewing beneath the, the Earth's surface, and all through the park, this brewing heat works its way out to the surface and forces its way through the Earth with great force and great power. And almost always, they evolve water. So, uh, is that better? Now yeah, I should be good. Uh, they and the the geysers throughout the area are allowing the release of of thermal activity, gases, and other things mixing with the with the minerals that are there to form beautiful, spectacular geysers like this one. But probably the most famous of all is Old Faithful, right? You're familiar with. Old Faithful. Old Faithful is, is amazing in that it shoots water about 180 feet in the air. Every time it erupts, it sends water about the same height, and it lasts for about the same length. Uh, it erupts now about 20 times a day, and it's so much like clockwork. clockwork. It is so faithful that the park can predict what times The eruptions will take place and you can make sure that you're there and you want to get there early if you want to see it because there's a great number of people but the park rangers will even tell you now if you sit right there you're going to get wet but if you'll sit right there you won't get wet and what's amazing is they're right because it is so consistent this this beautiful uh, geyser uh, there that is the maybe the, the granddaddy of, of them all when it comes to, to uh, uh, Yellowstone. But there are other well-known geysers that are well-known also, but for different reasons. For instance, there is the Grand Prismatic Pool or the Grand Prismatic Basin. Now, I don't know if you can see that from where you are, but on top of that, or above, I should say, Uh, that pool of water. There's little tiny, those are people. And I I wanted to point that out because I want you to see how huge this is. It is hot water, in fact, it is a natural spa, if you will. It's It's the world's, or it's the largest hot springs in the United States, and its kaleidoscope of colors is just breathtaking, and it's because of the different minerals that are under the surface that this water in its way out uh, into this pool uh, picks up and makes part of their, uh, of their, um, that landscape. Uh, there are some countless smaller pools and puddles that bubble and occasionally shoot spout, uh, spouts of superheated water out into the air. Then there is my personal favorite, the muddy geysers. They are also called mud pots or paint pots, sometimes they are called. And they are somewhere between, there's some sort of this cauldron of goo that's between liquid and solid. And as you watch it boil, it's kind of like watching a pot of uh, of oatmeal cook on the stove. These geysers burble and burp and boil, and they release bubbles of heat and gas into the air They come in different colors, depending on whatever predominant materials um, they hold, and they'll remind you of lava or of lava that is churning and mixing inside the earth. Now, why am I talking to you today about geysers? What does this have to, especially on a day when the chiefs kick off at noon? Why am I spending this time Talking to you about geysers. Well, it's because geysers remind me today of joy. Now, if you want to know how how this warped mind of mind works, you're going to have to stay tuned through this whole message, so you can understand how just like uh, the geysers and the thermal uh, thermal activity in Yellowstone. Uh, surfaces itself how that is like joy you're going to have to listen to me all the way through this but I want to talk to you about the Christmas story and talk about how the joy burst through and exploded during times of great disappointments great discouragements and great desperation joy is that trait that we are following Today on the third Sunday of Advent, and if you've been traveling with us, you know that Advent is a word that means coming, and it, it speaks of the coming of Jesus Christ. On our first Sunday of Advent, we talked about it also speaks to us to look forward to his return, his second coming, and you do know that he's returning, right? That was a promise that Jesus gave to us that he would return. And if we're not careful, we can lose some of the significance of all that. We can lose some of the impact of that in our lives. And we can, for us, Christmas or just the Christian life can become so ordinary and so humdrum. Because we don't allow that joy that's within to surface up through the cracks, through the breaks, through all the... Uh, The parts of our lives to erupt into something beautiful. So we're going to talk about that uh, about today uh, this idea of joy. The Bible tells us that Jesus was named Emmanuel, was called Emmanuel which means that God is with us and because God is with us we can have joy no matter the circumstances we find our lives in didn't get a single amen on that still didn't no matter our circumstances joy can fill our lives it really is not up to whether god's going to send us joy he's already done that it's a matter if we're going to allow it to burst forth in our lives if you have jesus in your life whether you know it or not you are filled with joy and whether you know it or not, that joy is looking for something to, to burst through in your life. And usually it's going to be through one of these times of disappointments or discouragements or worse. So I want to, uh, in order for us to understand how all that works, I want you to turn with me to the, to the book of Luke. In chapter one of Luke, chapter uh, of Luke chapter one, and find verse five. Today we're going to look at this theme of finding joy in our discouragements. There's a lot that that uh, that is spoken of about joy throughout the biblical Christmas story, especially early on in the story. But it's important to note that this joy isn't separate from disappointment and pain. In fact, much of the joy is born out of disappointment and grief. And we're going to look at that more closely today as we look and explore the stories uh, that are told to us in chapter 1 of two women. One of them named Elizabeth and the other named Mary. They were relatives. Exactly what kind of relatives? I, by how how I should say that exactly how they're related we can't really be certain. Some versions translate uh, that they were that Elizabeth was Mary's aunt. Other versions say that Elizabeth was Mary's cousin but somehow they were related together they knew one another. they were familiar with each other. The Bible tells us, A couple of other things about both of them, that they were both righteous, that they were both faithful, and they were both chosen by God to bring about this birthing of joy through the coming of Jesus. And so Mary and and Elizabeth are going to be the the keys, but we're, we're not talking about Mary at this point on Christmas Eve when she gives birth to Jesus but we're talking about Mary when she discovers that she has been chosen to bring Jesus into the world I suppose that those of us 2,000 years later who are Christians and have been involved in Christianity most if not all of our lives that we we look at that and we say man she must have really been excited she must have really thought it was a great thing that she had been chosen to. But Mary knew and understood the challenge that being a teenager and being pregnant with the Son of God really was going to be. First of all, nobody's going to believe her. But Elizabeth is going to be one who believes her. We're going to see that as we look at this story. So I want you to to look with me at, at verse five. Luke's Christmas story begins a little bit earlier than Mary and Joseph and Jesus. With a prophet named Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. And here's what Luke says. Verse 5. In the days of King Herod. when uh, In the days of King Herod, the king of Judah. There was a priest whose name was Zechariah. Of the division of Abijah. Let me just point out, what Abijah was one of of Aaron's sons. Aaron in the Old Testament, Moses' brother. And when the priesthood was established, when the temple or the tabernacle was being built and the instructions were given by God, there were only a certain group of people that could be priests. They had to be of Aaron's family, but they also had to be of Abijah's family. And so uh, this means what that, that says in that verse, that this one named Zechariah of the division of Abijah means that he was in, he was in line to be one of the priests that would serve in the temple. Okay, and that so that, that gave him a position of honor and of, of status. This man had a wife, verse 5 goes on and says, from the daughters of Aaron. That means she too was in the priestly line. Uh, and so, and her name was Elizabeth. So both Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth had the right to make claim that they were part of the priesthood. Their children then would also fall into that line, that lineage that would make them eligible to serve God as a priest to the people. Verse 6. They were both, Zechariah and Elizabeth, were righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. But, verse seven starts, but, one of the uh, most powerful words in, in the Bible is this word but. They were blameless. They walked in all the commandments and the rules, but they had no child. There are times in our lives, parents, when, uh, probably when you're having a bad day when you wish that could be said of you. I have no child. I don't know whose child this is over here, but he's (laughs) not mine. But in their day, to be barren, to be without a child, was a major shame. Was a a great grief and disappointment. And Elizabeth, later on in the chapter, she's going to say, it's going to be said of her who was advanced in years. She had lived with this shame of being childless all of her adult life. And you have to understand that the Jews believed that that was some sort of a curse from God. If you are a woman who's married and you don't have a child... God's got something against you. You're doing something wrong. Imagine to be the priest, or even maybe more difficult, the wife of a priest. And to have people think about you. I wonder what, why she doesn't have children. People don't, you just need to, can I get out of the sermon for about five seconds? People aren't very sensitive at, at times about certain situations, are they? So here is this situation. Where, where Elizabeth and Zechariah are without children because Elizabeth was barren. Both of them advanced in years. Now, this short paragraph would have spoken volumes to the readers that, uh, uh, who were part of Luke's original audience. You got Herod, the Roman king, keeping the Jews under harsh Roman control. These are difficult times that we're living in. And here we meet Zechariah and Elizabeth, both both of priestly lineage. In a day with a lot of religious corruption and power plays by the Pharisees and by the Sadducees, Zechariah and Elizabeth are a stark contrast to them. They are described as righteous, blameless, and faithful. This is especially important in light of what Luke tells us next. That Zechariah and Elizabeth, these righteous, good people, have no child. And it wasn't because of their relationship with God. But rather, it was all part of God's plan. Now, I'm going to presuppose here. I, this is a spoiler alert. If you want to wait until we read it or till you get home later and read it, uh, Elizabeth is going to get pregnant. And she's going to become pregnant with John the Baptist. And, she, and he is going to be the forerunner for the Messiah, for the Christ. That didn't catch God by, by surprise. That wasn't something he didn't know was taking place. But it was news to her. She might have imagined it, might have dreamed it, but she couldn't really have ever expected it. But she still remained faithful and obedient to her Heavenly Father. Sometimes we find ourselves in circumstances that are not uh, not because of anything we've done. Sometimes it's because of what's going on in the world that's around us. Sometimes it's because God has a different plan for you and he's Creating a force, he's creating a pressure situation so that what's in you can be burst forth, can can come out and make an impact uh, of beauty in the world in which we live. So, Zechariah and uh, and Elizabeth are going to have a son, a powerful prophetic son, who will prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. Now. And the verses that follow it tells us about Zechariah that he uh, he becomes so overwhelmed at this he can hardly believe the news, and so when he questions the news or asks the Gabriel to give the uh, the the news again, it's kind of like that blot commercial, and he wants. He he asks questions. The angel says, okay, you want a sign? Here's your sign. You won't be able to speak until the baby's born. And so the Bible tells us in the months then following her pregnancy that Zechariah is left writing and signing to the people around him. He can't speak. And then... Elizabeth, who's a little bit um, more eager or more willing to accept the truth, the, the message from the angel, uh, when, she, when she conceives, it, it was easier for her to get it, and she's going to conceive. Look at verse 24. I want, we're, going, we're going to skim our way through this first chapter. Verse 24 and verse 25. It says, after this, That his wife, Elizabeth, had conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me, to take away my reproach among the people. There's this, there's an odd note that's in there. Did you notice it? After she was pregnant, she went into hiding for five months. You find that kind of odd? This is somebody who all of her life had wanted to be pregnant. If Elizabeth were alive today and she were like most of us, she couldn't wait to post on Instagram or Facebook what's going on in her life. She wants everybody around to know. You know, I know that. When you look at Facebook, people will show pictures of what they're eating for lunch. We want it. We, we want everybody to know about us and what's going on. But Elizabeth goes into hiding for five months. I thought about it and I, I, I kind of concluded that maybe it has something to do with Elizabeth's disgrace. With the shame that she has carried all of her adult life. For her, the inability to have children would have been a lifelong source of pain and sorrow and shame. And that was a big deal in that culture. The great great hopes of the young couple Elizabeth and Zechariah would have eventually faded through the years as they tried repeatedly to have a child. The young Jewish woman, woman would have questioned herself and probably asked questions of other women. They probably would have questioned her unfairly perhaps casting suspicion or unfounded blame on her. Perhaps there were pregnancies along the way that had taken place that sparked new hope, but along with them might have come miscarriages to dash those hopes. Elizabeth's self-worth probably sunk as the years passed and as hope dimmed. and at some point, She and everyone around her would have declared Elizabeth barren, branded with this lifelong stigma. So maybe that's why she went into hiding for five months. She doesn't want to get her hopes dashed again. She doesn't want this to end up the way perhaps others had ended up. She wanted her to keep to herself, to let her hope blossom into joy personally. Or to ensure that this that this pregnancy was indeed going to last. Maybe she was simply savoring the days on her own. If we were watching a movie. It would come a point on the screen, right about now, that would say, "Meanwhile, back in Galilee," because what follows now is going to be the. The giving of of uh, of instruction, or the calling, the the anointing, uh, the choosing of Mary to be the mother, the bringer, the deliverer of the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, the Son of God, and Mary is going to. Uh, uh, is going to receive this word like Elizabeth willingly, although questioning, with some with some uncertainty. When they when uh, when Mary gets the word that she's going to become the mother of God, that was kind of a I say that light heartedly. She's going certainly become the mother of Jesus, who is God. Um, she knew. That all of a sudden now her life is going to be filled with shame and disgrace. What are people going to say? It's one thing to be a person who's lived your life the whole time not having children and wanting to have children. And have everybody think certain things about you. It's another thing to be very, very young. Maybe 12, 13, 14 years of age uh, Mary might have been. And to find yourself pregnant, that's a, that's a stigma that you carry with you a long time. And it's hard for her uh, to imagine what it's going to be like. How's she going to tell her fiancé, Joseph? Joseph has been to junior high health class. He knows how someone gets pregnant. And just saying, well, you, you don't have to worry, Joseph, because this is from God. Probably isn't going to float very well for very long, am I right? But she uh, she said ultimately she says, "Let it be done to me as you spoken. And and but she does ask, "How is this going to happen? Since I have never known a man?" Well, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and you will become uh, you will you will bear a child because of that and. That child will be the, will be called Jesus because he will save the people from their sins. So, um, but I want you to see what Mary does after she has um, after she has heard the word and made the commitment of her life. Meanwhile, over in uh, in the hill country is Elizabeth in hiding. Has been in hiding now for five months since her pregnancy. Actually, six months by the time all of this takes place. And it says in verse 39, going down a little bit further, you're going to see, In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country. Now, you, we haven't read it yet, but the next verse is going to tell us that she's going to the house of her relative, Elizabeth. Now, the question is, Why? Why is she going there? Well, she's just gotten word that she is going to have a baby through very um, unusual means. Unusual, is that a good good term? It's probably a weak term. Through spectacular, impossible way, she's going to have a baby. But remember that when the angel told Mary... That she was going to have a baby and she says, how's this going to be? The angel said to her, well, consider this, your relative Elizabeth, she's also going to have a baby and it was impossible for her. Uh, and so she was made aware that somebody who's, who's, um, who's now pregnant through their shame and through their disgrace, that kind of makes us uh, uh, compadres on the journey. And so she's going to go visit her her relative, and it says that with haste, she left as quickly as she could to get there. And it goes on, and it says in verse 40, uh, verse 39, she went to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah, and she greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth, and by the way, it doesn't tell us what she said when she greeted her. I don't know if she's kind of like Gomer and says, "Hey, hey, Elizabeth," and Gomer and Andy Griffith, um, or if she if she had if she's practiced some sort of a speech all the way there. I just somehow think that what she did was she told her Aunt Elizabeth, cousin Elizabeth we're related to each other so I can tell you I'm pregnant I'm not married yet but I'm pregnant but it's not because I've done something wrong it's because God has chosen me now if you hear that kind of a greeting Elizabeth's ears are going to point up, the antenna is going to go up because that's exactly the same thing that happened to her I too am pregnant, now Mary knows this I don't know if Elizabeth knew that Mary knew this, but she says, uh, "I too am pregnant through unusual terms because God has chosen me." So it says that when Mary or when Elizabeth heard the greeting from Mary, the, ba- the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 42 says she exclaimed with a loud cry blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb why is it why is this granted to me that the mother of my lord should come to me I I I really find that verse fascinating because in their culture remember Elizabeth was advanced in age she was older than Mary. How they were re- related, I'll leave that to somebody else. But they were related and she was older and in their culture, older people aren't necessarily celebrating what's happening to the younger person. The younger person is celebrating what's happened to the older person. But here, this is, why is it that I'm being blessed by the mother of my Lord to come and visit me? And it goes goes on. She says, Behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb, John the Baptist, leaped for joy. And blessed is she who who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. That's speaking to Mary. Uh, uh, The fact that you have believe what the angel told you and have acted on it is uh is one of the things that makes you blessed mary god sometimes will tell us this is what i'm going to do with your life and we we kind of say yeah right but when we can believe that what god says to us in his word he will do then we become blessed and so here are these two women that are sharing, and they have shared, they share in the fact that they both come from places of grief and sorrow and sadness and difficulties, but they also share now in the joy of knowing how God has used them and how God is bringing salvation to them. So as we as we think about this uh about this story. And by the way. After, after Mary hears what Elizabeth says. She bursts forth into song. And she sang the song that we know as the Magnificat. And it's, here's one verse from that. Mary said. My soul glorifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Because he's been mindful of the humble state. Of his servant. Now, chapter one is a beautiful passage of scripture. On one level it's a celebration and connection in the midst of miraculous events, but on another level it's two expectant mothers sharing a deep understanding and affirmation that fosters the flow of joy no matter what has happened before and no matter what is going to come in the day's There's much that we can take away from this story, but I want to focus right now on three points that you and I can apply to our own experience with joy. You ready? Number one, here's here's one lesson we can learn. It's good to be joyful and happy. Now, for some of you, that might be a no-brainer. Kind of a no-duh kind of statement. For others of you, this is a subversive kind of statement that might make you a little uncomfortable if you really think about it. A lot of people fall on that spectrum, especially within Christianity. That uh, and that spectrum probably depends on your personal past and your spiritual history. That says Christians are to be joyful, but not happy. That happy is kind of a feeling that the flesh has. And Christians shouldn't have happiness. They should have joy. Now, I know that in my own life, my own pastoral ministry, that there have been times I've preached about the difference, the contrast between joy and happiness, as if... Joy is to be embraced, and happiness is to be eschewed. But I want you to know, I think that what, what I get out of this story is that it's okay to be joyful, and it's okay if you are happy, Christian friend. It's all right to be happy, to enjoy. That, that, I, I grew up in the, in the Baptist church. I can still remember the service, the first service that I can recall in our church where somebody actually clapped along to the music. You would have thought that the devil himself had come into the, into the room. I can still remember in our church the first time a woman wore pants to worship. Not Sunday morning, Sunday night. What I'm I'm talking about is is that we have fostered for so long this idea that we're not supposed to be happy and joyful. But we are. We should have great joy, and that great joy should make us happy. Now, I think it matters where you get the joy from. I don't think you ought to get it at the bottom of a bottle. Or, and this is going to get me in trouble right here, or even watching a football game on, on TV. But it, it should come to us because of what Jesus Christ coming into my life means. Um, <clears throat> in actuality, the Bible doesn't make any difference, any distinction between joy and happiness. Did you know that? They are essentially different words for the same thing. Now, they might have a slightly different nuance or connotation, like oftentimes synonyms do. But those are often cultural, and they often change. They've been translated somewhat differently into our English translations of the Bible, but both the original and Greek terms used in the Bible to describe joy and happiness are essentially interchangeable. Now that's one of the premises by a, uh, of a book that was entitled Happiness by uh, Randy Alcorn and I recommend the book. Now I'm, he spends the entire book developing that thought but it's something that some of us need to be, need to hear and to be reminded of. It's okay to want to be joyful and happy. And it's okay to enjoy those emotions. Listen, it's Christmas. There is great joy in the Christmas season. Did any of you enjoy hearing Mm Eden? What a blessing that was to see her and to see her smile and to see her her countenance as she was singing something that she really believed. Isn't that great? I, uh, this was probably one of the first times I was very disappointed that we all have to wear masks because I would have loved to see the smiles on people's faces out here. That's what Christmas is. Christmas is a time of great joy, and we should enjoy that joy. We should, uh, we should, um, not have that joy taken away from us because of obligations or busyness or guilt through this season. It's okay to stop and say no and to pause and embrace a part of the season that brings you personal happiness. To those of you who find Christmas to be a painful, difficult season, to those of you who are hurting and grieving personally, Or feeling discouraged by this tumultuous last year we've been going through. Those of you who are happy to revel in this season, it's okay to embrace and to feel joy. God sees you no matter where you are on the emotional spectrum of happiness. My point here is that our longing for happiness and joy is a desire that God has placed within us as a reflection of his own joyful nature. Whatever term we want to call it, the most important part is our source of joy and happiness. Let me go to a second point. Not only is it good to be joyful and happy, joy is where our strength comes from. Now that's just not my my opinion. That's what the Word of God says. And here's I want to give you a great example of, of how our strength comes from being joyful. In the book of Nehemiah, you remember Nehemiah was the, the leader of God's people that led the people out some of the people out of bondage in uh, at that time the Persian Empire, and he was granted uh, permission by King Artaxerxes to come back. And rebuild the city's walls of Jerusalem. The city had been leveled, had been destroyed, the temple utterly destroyed by uh, King Nebuchadnezzar uh, of Babylon, and had taken people out with him, and the city had become a ghost town. Ever been to one of those places in the West? And that's what you see in, in Jerusalem. People weren't living there any longer. And earlier some had come back and rebuilt the temple of sorts. And, but they hadn't built the walls. And so the people weren't living in with God. And so Artaxerxes gave permission of Nehemiah to return home from the exile in Babylon and Persia and rebuild Jerusalem. The process was more than just a return to the physical city. It was a... It was a spiritual renewal and reawakening for the people. And in chapter 8. Now by this time they have already completed the walls. And the doors are going up. The gates are are being set in place. And and Nehemiah calls the people together. And they bring out the law of Moses. And Ezra is going to read it aloud. And as he does. People are weeping. Maybe there some of them are tears of joy from some of the people who remembered God's word from years past. But most of them wept from sadness as they recognized their guilt and how they had drifted away from God. So here in the beauty, in the midst of this scene, the Bible tells us what Nehemiah says to the people. Look. Look look on the screen at Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10. Then Nehemiah said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine. That's what you do at a party. Send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. Don't be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Did you hear that? Celebrate it. Enjoy it, Nehemiah says. Why? Because this is not a time for sadness, but a time for happiness. It's a time for celebration. God has brought us back, and God is restoring our city and our hearts. And because our source of strength is the very joy of the Lord, that is the fuel that will sustain us. One true source of happiness, joy and fulfillment, comes from Jesus. So Christmas is a season of joy because the Messiah has brought joy into the world. In First Peter <clears throat> chapter eight, or, I'm sorry, chapter one, verse eight, nine, <clears throat> Peter says, "Though you've not seen him, you love him." That's true of us, isn't it? I've never seen Jesus physically, never shook his hand, but I love him. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Because it obtains the outcome of your faith, and that is the salvation of your soul. Joy is a, is a thing that that happens to us because of what has happened to us. Now, I'm not suggesting, and I don't want this message to be heard as a don't worry, be happy, put on a happy face and a plastic smile and kind of fake it kind of joy. Sometimes this the joy of which I'm speaking Comes as a rushing fountain and erupts from our spirit. Sometimes it's a thick, slow bubble to the surface. Wherever you find yourself today, let me encourage you that the joy of the Lord can be felt no matter what we are facing. And that leads us then to our final point joy is an option. You can choose joy. Joy is something that when Jesus Christ comes into your life, you are filled with joy. But sometimes, do you, are you one of those people that kind of push it back down? Because we are, we are Christians who are supposed to be like this. And we push out the excitement, the joy, the celebration. We don't do this in church. We don't do this in church. That's, that's, as much of, that's as close to dancing as you want to see me do. But we are too dignified and too, uh, too proper to sometimes allow the joy to burst out of us so we keep it pressed down. But here's the point. You don't have to. You can choose to let joy be joy. To let joy be joyful, to allow the geyser to erupt. And when it does, it creates a thing of beauty. You ever been around a really genuinely joyful person? Just somebody that it is a delight to talk to. There's a happiness about their life, there's an excitement, there's a sparkle in their eye. And you may never say it out loud, but in your heart you say, I wish I had what. They had. I need to find out what they ate for breakfast. Joy can become something that we can choose to express daily. That's what James told you and me in James chapter 1, verse 2. He says, consider it, count it all joy. Some versions use the word consider. Choose joy, my brothers when you meet various uh, meet trials of various kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect so that you can be perfect and complete lacking in, no- in nothing opt for joy be happy be, celebrate Because, especially when things get tough, because that's one of the ways, the primary ways that God is going to push joy out of your life. Out through your life, I should say. You see, joy is an option that we have. It's a choice that we can make. Today, I can choose to be joyful. That's what is kind of suggested to us when the psalmist says that this is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. I will make a choice to be glad in it. Why? Because all of my circumstances are perfect and all of my ducks are in a row and everything is great in life. If you think that that's what the psalmist was saying, you haven't read through the psalms because the psalm writers seem to be going through some sort of a trial or a difficulty at the time they wrote wrote those psalms. And they can choose in the hard times, the difficulties... To let joy take over. Now if you think about this word joy. You will notice that it begins. Uh, that it's a, it's a form of the word rejoice. And rejoice is a word that starts off with re. And that means. If you think back to your grammar classes. That words that start with Re seems to talk about or you will remember to take you back once more or once again or to return to so to rejoice is to return to joy the joy that you had when jesus christ became your savior it's a choice and an action that we can take to return to joy and i'd like to add that for us It is a return to our source of joy, a return to Jesus Christ. Friends, I believe this is the only way we can find true delight, satisfaction, and happiness in life. And I believe the process is the same for all of us, whether we are feeling the happiness uh, and joy of the season or not. Whether we are buried in discouragement or whether everything is going our way none of us can conjure an unending supply of feel-good happiness all the time no matter how optimistic or how positive our natural disposition is sooner or later we all have one of those days weeks or years and in reality We all have them way more often than we'd like. And that's where we comes in. We must return regularly, daily, constantly to Jesus because that is our source of joy. And joy is our source of strength. I've got to admit, sometimes that's the last thing We want to hear when we're hurting. Joy can feel so far away when we're grieving or depressed or afraid. As our pain and our problems loom. Let me encourage you that that James isn't necessarily saying we should be happy about our trials and our problems. But we should be happy in them. Because God is using them to bring about his work in our life. In the difficult times, there's much enjoyment to be found in the rejoices of the psalms. Psalm 13 is one of those examples. And I close with this. Psalm 13 is a short psalm. And verse 1 starts off with a painful cry. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? You ever have one of those days? Then I I want you to jump on down to verse 5 of Psalms 13, and it says, But I trust, I trust in your steadfast love. Your heart shall rejoice. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. That's just one of many examples. The Psalms are honest and raw as the writers pour out their feelings in these prayer-like poems And songs. Then we see them transition through the process of remembering and stirring themselves to rejoice and to find strength in and through God. That's where we and how we find authentic joy. This is how we can celebrate this season as we remember and turn to Jesus who has come to be with us. And to bring us, to give us joy. So friends, let's rediscover Christmas this year by embracing joy. No matter what we're going through, let's remember each day the source of our joy. Let's seek happiness, not in the seasonal trappings and traditions around us, but in returning constantly to our source of joy. Let's, con- let's choose to continue the process of rejoicing. Despite the pain and the challenges that we face. Heed the good news of the angels. That, br- that bring great joy to all of us. A savior has been born. A Messiah. And he will carry us through. And complete his work in us. No matter what. Joy. Joy. I want you to pray with me, if you will. Today, Father, as we have focused on joy, I pray that it is with joy and happiness that we receive your word today. That, that our, our lives would be overwhelmed with joy. That it would spew forth, it would... It would burst forth. It would gush from us so that all could see and wonder where that joy comes from, that happiness comes from. So that, Father, we can explain to them and share with them this same joy that came on Christmas Eve so long ago is there for them as well. Oh, but I have to clean myself up, we say. I have to get my life together. No, we can come to him just as we are. So, Father, may joy captivate us today and this entire Christmas season as our hearts return to you to rejoice in you. Thank you, Father, for giving us joy. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.